I'm Bruce McGregor, joined in studio today by Sharon Doran. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning, Bruce. And are we ready for scripture? We are. We are. I got the full length of the song there. So. All right. Sonic fine. Club bringing that's, us on here. All right. Because it is, it is in the secret and uh, it is in the word. That's right. And uh, our intention here to uh, break open the word, Seeking Truth with Sharon Dorn. And we're going to be working through the Gospel of John together, Sharon. And the tangible benefit out there is that uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of people uh, can join along with us. And uh, today we're going to look at chapter one, John's prologue. Oh, wow. We couldn't start with a, a more meaty symphony, could we, than John's Indeed. prologue? Oh, my goodness. All the sim- uh, of, of all the things ever written. I love when Augustine says uh, that those words were worthy to be written in gold and displayed in the most prominent place in every church. It is so rich with meaning. It is just, it's just exploding. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we see a lot of uh, John references, of course, 316, mm-hmm. one of the more popular ones. You see it in mm-hmm. football stadiums right. and things That's everywhere right. else. Behind every goalpost yep. on License plates and everything right. else. Well, we should probably put John 1-1 in there as uh, well. Yeah. And uh, let's go ahead and uh, break that open. Uh, we were talking a little bit about how this exercise will be uh, in the form of exegesis, and we went and looked up, of course, as uh, a critical explanation or interpretation of a text and uh, most commonly used uh, with the Bible. Right. And it's just kind of a line by line, just taking line by line and looking at Scripture in the complete context in unity, because it has every book in the Bible has the same author, and that's the Holy Spirit, ultimately, as well as the human author. But Augustine also said that, you know, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the old, in the Old Testament, the New is concealed, and in the New Testament, the Old is revealed. So we just kind of go line by line and see how the Holy Spirit inspired uh, the author and the Word, uh, and just kind of bouncing back and forth, and and I love doing it that way. All right. Well, here we go from the prologue, chapter 1. Let's start at verse 1, and it is loaded. Uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, well, in the beginning, right off the bat, in the beginning, every good Jew listening to John, and, and these were read orally in the synagogue, but every Everyone would have known, in the beginning, in the beginning, in the beginning, that's how Genesis starts. So right away, John is taking us right back to the very, very start of the Bible. And let's just go then to Genesis 1, and that first verse is, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was hovering over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said... So just in the very first sentence of the Bible, we see Trinity already in the very first sentence. And a lot of people don't pick that up. In the Bible, you'll never see the word Trinity in the whole Bible. The word Trinity is not in there. Uh, The church had to put the pieces together, and it was the Holy Spirit that was revealing this to John. But he goes right back. So we have God the Father creating. We have the Spirit of God hovering over the darkness. And then God said, God spoke the word. So the word came through God. They were all there in unity right in the beginning, right from before the beginning. They, they, they will intersect time and space to, to come to us. But so John, right off the bat, is calling from a place outside of time and space from before the beginning. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. So the Father's creating, and he's ordering the chaos. There's void, there's emptiness, there's darkness. The Spirit of God is hovering over. And in that water is potential of life, of course, and God spoke the word. 
And so all things are created through the Word, through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Word. Amen. <laughs> yep, got goosebumps already. <laughs> all right, now as we look at verse 2, he says, He was in the beginning with God. That's right. In the beginning, before the beginning of time. Time hasn't even, God God exists outside of time and space. And the Father already is in perfect union with the Son and the Spirit before the beginning of time. And so that, that makes us think about Trinity and, and how that works. Because uh, John later tells us that God is love. Well, love can't exist by itself. Love is always in relationship. And so we see these three persons of one God. And uh, the Trinity, the Church uh, tells us in the Catechism that the Trinity is the number one mystery of our faith. And and so I, uh, in conjunction with the Bible, Bruce, I think we should turn to the Catechism. And would you read that for us at number article 234? Uh, The mystery of the Most Holy Trinity is the central mystery of Christian faith and life. It is the mystery of God in himself. It is therefore the source of all other mysteries of faith, the light that enlightens them. It is the most fundamental and essential teaching in the hierarchy of the truths of faith. The whole history of salvation is identical with the history of the way and the means by which the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, reveals himself to men and reconciles and unites with himself those who turn away from sin. Mm, great, because it, we, we do, we really have to contemplate Trinity to understand God. And the Jewish people, uh, in Deuteronomy 6, they were always told God is one, God is one. Well, now we're, we're figuring out God is three. And it's there in the scripture, but it's hidden. And so our early church fathers are figuring this out. And Jesus Christ himself came to reveal that. And then he said, I won't leave you alone. I'll send the Spirit, and he's going to help you understand more when I'm gone, when I go back up to the Father. So there really are are three persons in one, and it blows our mind, but it's really important that we understand that it is the central mystery of our Catholic faith. And so right off the bat here, we see John uh, kind of writing an apologetic defense. He's going to show the true divinity of Christ, that Christ has intersected, that God has intersected time and space, that God has come to dwell in reality, in the world. And uh, all around him already, Gnosticism is raging, heresies are springing up, his friends are being martyred for the faith. And so it, it takes time to figure out these doctrines. I mean, this is this is not just, they didn't just Google Trinity, you know, right. and see what it was. So, so um, it wasn't until actually 325 AD where the very first ecumenical council of the Catholic Church met, and that was the Nicene Council. And uh, that was because Arianism, a heresy, was, was, was raging, and, and they needed to make a uh, definition of Trinity and define that formally. And so what a blessing for us that, uh, you know, um, the church protected, defended, figured this stuff out, and then and then saved it for us. Um, we had all kinds of, let's just, can we talk a minute about oh, the church absolutely. fathers? Like, um, we had uh, Turla Tulian and Clement of Alexandria and Irenaeus. They were bishops uh, at the opposite ends of the Mediterranean, both teaching Trinity in the early church. Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple, uh, a follower of St. John the Evangelist. Yeah, now and, I think it's this is a, a, an important time to just maybe stop here okay. and realize that here we have a direct connection. You know, when we mm. talk about the oral tradition yes. of the church and, yes. and, and all of these important things, we have a direct connection 
uh, between a person to one of the apostles. Absolutely. So John's an old man, and here's Polycarp sitting at his feet, listening to John, who abided with Christ, who laid on his chest, who was with him at the cross, who never left his side. Polycarp learning Trinity from John. And even before uh, uh, that, um, Justin Martyr had died in 157 AD. He had written about Trinity. And uh, before Justin Martyr, there was St. Ignatius of Antioch. And he was a bishop that was thrown to the lions in Rome. But even on his way to martyrdom, he was still writing treatises on the Trinity about Trinitarian theology and passing them off to others before he was torn apart by lions. And he he, uh, was born in 33 AD. So there again, he is living at the time the apostles were living. Mm -hmm. So it is a living church. You're exactly right how how our church stands on a a stool kind of with three legs, Uh, the, the three being oral tradition, the living magisterium, and the sacred scriptures. So, wow. Yeah. I mean, and obviously scripture is not written at that point in time. Right. So, I mean, we're just, uh, right. you know, we, we have these living connections and it's just marvelous. Mm. Well, let's focus on the third verse all right. uh, that says, uh, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Sounds mm-hmm. like uh, a lot like the creed that uh, that we pray at the Mass. Boy, here. does it ever. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so much of our profession of faith in the Nicene Creed echoes John's prologue. I've been noticing that at Mass. John says in verse 3, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Through the Word, Jesus Christ, all things are made. So we just, I, I, John's gospel is a gospel of life. And Jesus Christ brought a gospel of life. Jesus Christ is life. And uh, through Jesus He's the Word, and through the Word, all things are made. God spoke the Word. God spoke the Word, and through the Word, all things are made. Jesus Christ sustains all life. He holds all life in His hands. The next breath I take is because He allows it. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. All life comes through Him. And like our creed said, He's begotten. He's not made. He's not created. He was before creation. He was. He existed in harmony with the Father, with the Spirit, before the beginning of time. So He's an uncreated being, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Through Him all things were made. Sound familiar, Bruce? It does indeed. Mm-hmm. All right, Sharon, let's look at verses 4 and 5. Uh, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness Mm. has not overcome it. Life, 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 (laughs) life, and the light of all, the light of all mankind. And John is wonderful about these uh, dichotomies, these dualities, life, death, darkness, light. So we see darkness, darkness hovering over the earth, and darkness is waiting for light. I just love to just contemplate on that. Before the beginning of time, darkness was waiting for light. Chaos, chaos is waiting for order. Everything's in chaos. And then God said, and so, so even now, I, you know, sometimes I feel my life is, is chaos, waiting for order. Mm-hmm. Things in our culture are way out of order. And, and, and man waits for order. Man waits for light. So in Genesis, back again, if we, if we take the symphony and, and go back mm-hmm. to Genesis 1, verse 2, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was hovering over the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the water. The light shines, and in the darkness, darkness, the minute light hits darkness, who wins? Light. Right. Because if you have a pitch black room and you open the door just a little crack, you can see your way because your eye is drawn to the light. Light 
always penetrates darkness. So uh, the Greek word there is katalambano. Uh, uh, Darkness is waiting for light. Darkness can't comprehend light. Darkness can't understand light. Darkness doesn't like light. Darkness wants to stay dark. When I flip on my uh, Johnny, when he's in in bed in the morning, he doesn't like to get up. I flip on the lights. The light hurts my eyes. Uh, Darkness is waiting for light. And all throughout salvation history, we see that. We Mm -hmm. see the Israelites later, darkness waiting for light. I love that. They're in bondage. They're in bondage under Pharaoh of Egypt. They're waiting. They're waiting. Bondage is waiting for freedom. Darkness is waiting for light. And then later, uh, the Israelites will get into idolatry. Uh, God has told them, I am the God. Uh, uh, He does not want them to worship false gods. But what do they do? They worship false gods. They break the first commandment. So they're in darkness and they're waiting for light. And Isaiah uh, chapter 9 verse 2 says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Darkness is waiting for light. And there again at that time of King Ahaz ruling, evil King Ahaz, and they were going in a wrong direction. And Isaiah in chapter 7 verse 14 predicts, he prophesies that, that the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel, God with us. So they're in darkness and they're waiting for light. And it's really important that way back then, hundreds and hundreds of years before Messiah, Isaiah predicted that a virgin, a virgin would be with child. And the translators in Greek and Latin were both very careful to retain virgin. It wasn't just a young girl. Mm -hmm. It's a virgin is going to give birth. So uh, so darkness is waiting for light. That was 700 years at least before Christ came. Darkness is waiting for light. So light's always more powerful than darkness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, that uh, holds true today, of course. Uh, the evil one, we call mm. him the prince of darkness. Yes. And, you know, yes. often in prayer, yes. we invoke the light of Christ to mm. uh, wrap that darkness and uh, bind him and send him away. Mm. That's right. That's where all this comes from. Mm-hmm. Well, now these next three verses, Sharon, seem a bit like uh, an abrupt an abrupt shift, if you will, mm-hmm. in uh, John's prologue. Uh, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. Uh, he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Mm. And yeah. uh, we know who we're talking about here. Yes, we're talking about John the Baptist, but isn't that interesting? We have those those beautiful five verses, that poetic, da-da-da, and then... Boom. Yeah. There was a man. His name was John. <laughs> he came as a witness to the light. Why why does does he have to talk right now about John the Baptist? Well, uh, in the time he's writing, and he's writing from Ephesus, there's still a sect uh, of, of Jews following John the Baptist. They're John the Baptist groupies. They loved John. John's been uh, martyred now for Christ, but they still think John was the one. John was very charismatic. And in fact, in Acts chapter 19, when Paul is in Ephesus, I'm going to read you something here that, that shows the problem. Um, well, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is where John is writing this from. There he found some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? 
John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, oh, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That's Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So see, John is writing from Ephesus, and he has to get it cleared up right away. This is an apologetic letter. He has to show that, and John the Baptist would only point to Jesus. Uh, John the evangelist knows that that Jesus, Jesus is the light. And so right away, he's going to let them know it's not John. And John would have told you the same thing. John said, I'm the, the best man. The bridegroom's coming. I can't even untie his sandal strap. So right off the bat, John wants to clear that up and get it straight that it's not John the Baptist. It's Jesus Christ, okay. who's the light of the world. Absolutely. Let's look at uh, verses 9 through 11. Uh, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Uh, He was in the world, and through him the world was made through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Mm. Who are his own? Who are his own when he was writing this? The world doesn't recognize Christ. The world, uh, especially if you're living in darkness, darkness doesn't really like light and sometimes doesn't want to recognize light because light usually means <laughs> exposure, yeah. full transparency, a change possibly. That's scary. So uh, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Who were his own? The Jews. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, all the way down, all the way through the kings of Israel and the prophets, they were all, in in John chapter 4, he's going to tell the Samaritan woman that salvation comes from the Jews. And so it, it, salvation is here. Salvation has come into the world. Salvation is from the Jews. And a lot of the Jewish people are going to recognize him, and a lot are going to deny him at the time. And so uh, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. All right, as we move to verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Mm-hmm. This is this mm-hmm. is John's gospel, how he, it is for all, it is for all, it is for all. And uh, some of the Jews, that's going to be a stumbling block for them because they know that they are the chosen people. They are the ones God revealed himself to first. They are the ones that have the law. They are the ones. And now he's saying this is for all. He gave the right for all to become children of God, for all. That's going uh, to trip quite a few people up, Mm -hmm. including the Pharisees and a lot of just normal people that are not going to understand that that this is for all. And I also think that that is a great uh, pro-life verse, that uh, he gave the right for all to become children of God. Every conception has the right to become a child of God. Yeah, I'll tell you, that's uh, going against the culture of death uh, right Mm -hmm. now, 2,000 years later. Mm -hmm. Well, Sharon, uh, now uh, we've got uh, the baton in hand, I guess kind of uh, the crescendo of uh, the entire symphony here, if you will, which is verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No. <laughs> that is the, the huge crescendo, the climax of the entire pro, prologue, that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Mm-hmm. The Word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. God of the universe becomes flesh. And I like the Greek uh, for dwelling, uh, tabernacled among us. He tented among us. And that, when I think of it that way, um, I'm just taken back to just an explosion of, of what this might mean in the Old Testament. Right from the beginning of time, when Adam and Eve stood in the garden with God, and they were in full transparency, they were clothed in the light of God. They hid nothing from one another. They were just clothed in the glory of God until the fall. And then we see they're ashamed, and they're hiding, and they get leaves, and and God in his mercy covers them with clothing, but everything's changed. They used to be in the full presence of God, and now they're going to be banished from the garden. Is that because God's mean? No, that's because God's merciful. He clothes them and he banishes them from the garden because if they pick from the tree of life and eat, they'll be separated from him forever. And so God in his mercy is going to banish them. So now we've lost presence with God. We, we can't be face to face. We've lost uh, dwelling among him. They used to dwell with him in the garden. Now they've lost that. So the whole quest of man over the next 2,000 and some years into, for, for each heart even today is to be in presence with God. Mm-hmm. And so how is that going to happen? How are we going to get that FaceTime back with God? So, so here's where it starts right after the fall. Each person trying, trying to find God, that quest for God. Uh, there's a Raphael room in the Vatican where... Um, uh, the School of Athens, and it's it's all the philosophers and the greatest minds and the greatest mathematicians and philosophers and scientists, and man wants to know. John here is drawing on a lot of wisdom literature, um, Proverbs 8 and Sirach 24. Um, who is wisdom? What is wisdom? Who is God? Is there a God? Is You know, man always, always has wanted to know that. Every culture, every time in history has wanted to know, is there a God? Where is God? Where's the presence of God? And the word becomes flesh and makes his dwelling among us. He tabernacles with us. Okay, so let's let's think then of um, some people did get to see God. Abraham conversed with God. Jacob, Isaac, the, the huge fathers of our faith. Uh, Jacob wrestled with an angel. He wrestled with God. Abraham, the Trinity, visits him in his tent and says, you're going to have, you know, makes a, makes a huge promise with him. Mm-hmm. So some of these huge patriarchs get uh, to, to speak with God. And then comes Moses. And and he frees the people, and he gets to speak face-to-face with God a lot. Like a friend, it says in Scripture, Moses would speak face-to-face with God. Wow. Until, until after the apostasy, the people had said, all that the Lord has said we will do, all that the Lord has said we will do. And then Moses goes up, and, and in the meantime, in the 40 days, revelry breaks out. And, and uh, when he comes back down, uh, he, God is so angry, and and Moses is going to give up FaceTime with God to intercede on behalf of the people. He's, he says, Lord, the Lord said, hey, Moses, let's just, I am so mad at these people. Let's just destroy them all, and you and I will go on and, and forge a new. And, and Moses said, no, 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 we can't do that. If you don't go with us, nothing will distinguish us. If you're not with us, if you're not present with us. And so, and so Moses mediates on their behalf and gives up FaceTime with God. Now Moses can't see him face to face. Now Moses sits in the cleft of the rock and God passes by. Someone else is going to give up FaceTime with God for 33 years to come to earth and dwell among us and tabernacle with us and show us the way back to the Father, take on the curse for us. So this word is going to become flesh and make his tabernacle among us. 
Um, I just uh, still, still the people, they, they want it to be with God. And so then God designs this Ark of the Covenant that they can carry around and have the true presence of God with them. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's a whole nother discussion. Do we have time to get into Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. so, so what is in this Ark of the Covenant? Do you remember, Bruce? Well, uh, the Ten Commandments, or <laughs> the remnants right. thereof. That's right. The Ten Commandments are in there. There's a jar of manna in there, we're told in Hebrews 9. And there's the the stick, the uh, rod of Aaron that sprouted. So there's three things in there, the bread of life, the law, and authority. Mm. And and this, they carry it all around. And if you touch the ark, you could drop over dead. And they, they revered the ark. They revered the ark. On top of the ark was an atonement seat, the mercy seat. Now, what's interesting is that this ark gets carried all over, and some people die if they're irreverent around it. And what that ark represents is the presence of God. They want to dwell. They want to tabernacle with God. And, 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 and they take him to war, and they carry him all over the wilderness for 40 years. They, carry, they, they just revere that ark. And when David is bringing that ark back to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6, he leaps in front of the ark. And he's a king, but he puts on, um, he puts on priestly garb. And some of, some of the people are disgusted with that, but he leaps. It's not very kingly behavior, but he's leaping in front of this ark. And that is in the foothills of Judea. Now, someone else comes to those same foothills. That ark that David uh, takes there sits there for three months. There's someone else that comes to the same foothills for three months. And someone else is going to leap in front of the ark. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. John the Baptist, the little fetus inside Elizabeth's stomach, Mary comes to those same foothills. Mary is the new ark. Mary has the presence of God inside her. Mary's the seat of wisdom. Wisdom himself comes through Mary. And so Mary goes to those same foothills. She stays for three months. She's the new ark of the covenant. And inside her is what? Christ. And what is Christ? He's the bread of life. He's the new covenant, the new law. Mm -hmm. And he's authority itself. Remember, and all the miracles in John, and he's healing with such authority. And the people say, oh, he speaks with such authority. Even when he was a 12-year-old lost in the temple, oh, he speaks with such authority. How, 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 how can this be? How can he heal on the Sabbath? Oh, where does he get the authority to do that? And how, how can he forgive sins? Only God has the authority to do that. Well, guess what? He's God. He's authority himself. Mary is holding all three of those things inside her in her womb. And she goes to those same foothills where Elizabeth was. And she stays there for three months. And David is in those same foothills in front of the ark, leaping. It's only two times leaping is used, Mm -hmm. leaping in the New Testament. John the Baptist leaps. And so we have a new presence of God among us. And that's what we've waited for. That was the light. We were, darkness was waiting for light. Darkness was waiting for this new covenant to come. And it's here and it's dwelling among us. It's tabernacling among us. And guess what? It didn't go away. It's tabernacling at St. Stephen's. It's tabernacling here at the Word Incarnate. It's tabernacling at St. Mark and Mary's. It's tabernacling at St. Leo's. It's tabernacling tabernacling in every Catholic tabernacle all over the world. And then we get to take it in ourselves. And it's tabernacling inside of us in the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. The Word of God Mm -hmm. became flesh and tabernacled among us. Wow. Anyone want to go to Mass today? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Or go sit and adore the Eucharist. You bet. Go sit in any parish you're driving by, pull your car over, and just go sit and be with Jesus. He's there in true presence. Blows my mind.
blows my mind. Why are we here, Bruce? Why don't we just go sit in the chapel and just be before the true presence of God? He's tabernacling among us right now. Darkness has been overcome by the light of the world. Yeah, and that's the beauty of studying this, Sharon, is that we see in the Old Testament prophecies of things to come, and we see in the New Testament the fulfillment of <sighs> that which was uh, predicted in the Old Testament. That's right, yeah. that's right. And just the source and summit of our faith, the Eucharist. I mean, how 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 could people miss this? Mm-hmm. Wait till we get to John 6, that he is saying, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you will not have life within you. When we take that in, he tabernacles within us. Mm-hmm. It's life this is a gospel of life so so wow what a huge gift he has given us in the eucharist Mm -hmm. what a huge gift because he tabernacles among us with us in us through us and then we can be christ to others we can bring him to others because he's in us yeah one of those points you just touched on drag scott Hahn right into the church (laughs) Uh, uh, well amen because i i mean when you start studying this stuff you cannot leave out eucharist Mm -hmm. You know, body, soul, blood, and divinity, true presence, the Word becomes flesh and tabernacles with us. And that's one of the other beautiful things, too, Sharon, about, you know, so many of the devotions that we have in the Catholic Church. Just a quick little aside Mm -hmm. here, but, you know, I mean, we pray the Angelus at Mm -hmm. 6 in the morning, at noon, and at 6 in the evening. And that line is a very, very focal point of that prayer. Mm. Mm. You know, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Also, you know, it gives us something tangible. I mean, we're humans. Some, you know, when it, it's nothing abstract. We can have it right in our hand. We can have Christ right on our tongue. And, you know, Hebrews 11, 1 says that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. But he even lets us see him, mm-hmm. you know. We even get to see him and touch him and hold him and taste him. I mean, wow, yeah. that's tabernacling among us, with us, in us, through us. Yeah, and that's a reason uh, churches should be full uh, all the time. I mean, mm. it, you know, for some reason, if we could really embrace that, really grasp that. I know. You know, but yet it seems for so many people it's it, it's it's so far away or it's a place you visit just on Sunday, folks. Take some time. Make that hour. See if you can do an hour every day, I mean, in front of the tabernacle. Don't you feel like we should be crawling up for Eucharist? Mm-hmm. You know, we just fly through the line sometimes. And, and I, I know Protestants that have converted say, how, how, how can Catholics not just crawl up to the Eucharist on their face and say, this is God, you know? Mm-hmm. Do we really believe that? Do we really contemplate that? Do, you know, do we ask the Holy Spirit for his understanding? Uh, because it's true. Yeah, absolutely. Sharon, I just uh, hate the fact that we have oh! to battle the clock. <laughs> oh! Well, I will be anxious to come back and continue the second half of the prologue next time I'm here, Bruce. You bet. We will do that. Uh, Sharon Doran here with us this morning, and uh, we look forward to seeing you and your uh, wonderful husband, Steve, this Saturday at uh, the Spirit Award dinner. Can't wait. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun, and uh, Sister Ann Shields will be mm. kind of tabernacling with you guys for oh, a while. Oh, that'll be fun. <laughs> that'll be great. Can't wait. All right, so again, uh, if you want to get uh, reserved tickets for the Spirit Award dinner, again, it's this Saturday, Strategic Air and Space Museum in Ashland. Uh, just give us a call here at the station at 402-571-0200, extension 28. And again, uh, my uh, heartfelt thanks to uh, Sharon for uh, sharing all of this this morning. It's uh, been absolutely wonderful. And uh, if you want, you'll have an opportunity, family members out there, to uh, meet Sharon. Uh, at uh, the Spirit Award dinner. So thanks, Sharon. God bless. Keep seeking truth. Absolutely. Amen. Bye-bye.